Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 311. Uh, today we're going to be talking about colonial times. We're going to be talking about colonial times, the African-American experience in the New England colonies, the middle colonies, and the southern colonies, basically the English colonies in the New World. Uh, if you open up your PowerPoint, you're going to see a, actually a fairly old picture. Uh, Homer Howard Pyle is the guy who did like the old school Robin Hood ones. This is like ancient. Um, this is pretty much where Africans first came to the United States, well, what would later become the United States, 402 years ago in 1619 in Jamestown. The first slaves were delivered to Jamestown. Uh, how did it happen? We'll talk about it in a second. But I, I want you to think about 1619 is one year before 1620, which was when the pilgrims came over on the Mayflower to Plymouth Colony. So even before the pilgrims showed up to the uh, what would later become the United States, uh, Africans and slaves were already there. Uh, yeah, we make a big deal about the pilgrims for Thanksgiving, but as you can see, Africans are already there. Uh, this the, Today's topic uh, can be controversial, um, believe it or not. Uh, there was the 1619 uh, Coalition uh, Commission, not Coalition, the Commission two years ago, which basically was going to talk about this. Uh, you know, get into different high schools and different curriculum. Kind of actually had a backlash from How um, by Howard Trump. Oh my gosh, he's only been in office for a week. I missed his name, Donald Trump, and some Republicans because they thought it was theoretically anti-American. Uh, I'm not going to go one way or the other with that one, but I just want you to be thinking about that as we get started. So, as I said uh, last class, uh, you know, talked a little bit about how slaves are coming over to the New World. Remember, the vast majority of those enslaved, the vast majority of people who came over on the slave ships, did not come to North America. They did not come to what would later become the United States. Now, the English, of course, were, were there. Uh, by, by the, the English had started coming there in uh, 1607, they came. But before that, you have the Native Americans, American Indians, whatever you want to call them. Uh, the various tribes are around. Uh, by the 14th century, uh, there's a lot of different Native American cultures going on up there. Um, Native Americans came over, as best we can tell, archaeologically, uh, across the Bering Strait, which is up by Alaska, about 10,000 years ago, give or take. Uh, they, were the, they first came over, they started spreading downwards, a lot of different languages, a lot of different groups. Uh, anytime we talk about Native Americans or Indians, you got to remember which particular tribe or people are we talking about. You know, the Powhatans from around Virginia are very different than the Aztecs around Mexico, and they all have very different interactions with the Europeans. Uh, the relationship between the various Indian groups and the Europeans really depends on a lot of different factors. Uh, for instance, in this class, we're not going to have too much time, or we're not going to have any time, to talk about like the Aztecs and the Spanish. Uh, the Aztecs were kind of jerks. Uh, they kind of conquered a lot of other different peoples. And whenever the Spanish came in, they were looked as liberators by the other peoples. That's the way they beat the Aztecs. Uh, in North America, though, a lot of other different peoples, we don't really know what happened to all of them. Um, they don't have tons of record keeping. Uh, unlike the West Africans, who have like a very strong oral storytelling tradition, Native Americans have some, we just don't have as much about it. Uh, also, there is a lot of deaths that happen by Native Americans. Um, of course, once the Europeans come over, they start spreading disease. But even before the Europeans 
um, come over, there, there seems to be a bit of a death of Native Americans across the North America. Um, not sure exactly. Maybe there's some climate change. Um, you know, we don't, maybe there's a disease or something. We don't know, but it, it seems like whenever the Europeans come over and they start talking to the Native Americans, uh, the, the Europeans kind of get told by the Native Americans, yeah, there used to be a lot more of us and are there more people inland and we don't really know what happened to them. So I don't know that. But what you do want to think about is that the Native Americans have a very complicated relationship with Africans and later African-Americans. Uh, there is no, like, one thing that really describes their relationship. It could be very different depending on the groups of people, depending on the tribe, depending on uh, geography. Are we talking about free Africans or enslaved Africans? Uh, where are we talking about? Uh, very, very, very um, complex. Uh, Native Americans lived, quote-unquote, harmoniously with nature. Uh, the, the term harmonious is a bit of a misnomer. Um, human beings have an impact on their environment, period. Uh, you can try to be as, like, you know, eco-friendly as possible, and I would, I would de definitely recommend it, but still, I mean, people do have a way that they interfere with the environment. Um, nobody's completely harmonious with the environment. Now, you might say that the Native Americans are far less destructive than the Europeans, and I'd probably be prone to agree with you on that one, but I uh, don't think that they're all like, you know, a bunch of shaman or like, you know, crunchy granola types living together. Uh, Native Americans do impact the environment, uh, particularly around like uh, New England. They use slash and burn farming techniques, which basically you kind of cut the brush around trees. So pretty much like a lot of forests up there kind of look like parks uh, or like national parks where there's like not a lot of undergrowth and just big trees all over the place. There is quite a bit of influence on Africans, though. Um, Native Americans and Africans kind of, I don't want to say allies, but they, they definitely feel a kinship um, more than skin color. Uh, remember, the race is still kind of a, not really a thing of this time period. It's still developing. Uh, just more like a, hey, you're treated not great by the English. I'm not great treat, uh, treated great by the English. It, it can be complex in that. That being said, though, sometimes Native Americans were indeed slaveholders. Uh, not necessarily this early, but later on, like when we talk about the, well, I don't know if we're, yeah, we're probably going to talk about this, the, the five civilized tribes, quote-unquote, before the Trail of Tears, uh, your Cherokees, your uh, Choctaws, your Seminoles, um, Creek and Chickasaw, I think those are the, the four, yeah, whatever, the, civil, the civilized tribes, uh, the ones who got sent on the Trail of Tears, uh, they were actually slaveholders. They actually had plantations. Some Native Americans do get into the slaveholding thing. Likewise, some Africans, uh, slave or otherwise, really help defend against Indian raids. They, they see there's this big thing that comes together. But the thing that really draws them together, if you get one slide, is that they are both similarly oppressed in the American colonies. Uh, both Native Americans and Africans are not treated all that great by the Europeans, uh, particularly the English. Uh, I, I should mention this very quickly. Um, the Spanish and French are the other ones who are really getting involved in uh, New World colonization in this time period. They have different views of race. Um, for instance, the Spanish, the Spanish are very keen about, you know, being Spanish, but they, there's a way for the children of Spanish and Native Americans to have legitimacy. Uh, they, they are not necessarily considered like a different race. They are not considered otherwise. 
Um, if a Spaniard marries a Native American, that's perfectly fine. Uh, their child is considered a you know legitimate. They're not a bastard or anything. They could inherit. Now later on, there's a very specific. Um, a- stratification system of culture in the Spanish New World. Basically, only people of certain ancestry could get certain jobs. Uh, By and large, the more Spanish you were, the more Spanish your ancestry was, uh, the more inclined you were to be on the upper end of the spectrum. But still, race is not as stark as it is in the English colonies. Uh, Likewise, the French, the French, uh, the French actually intermarry quite a bit with Native Americans. Um, the French outside of New Orleans never really have that extensive of a colonial presence in the United States. And I know somewhere, some of my old professors are going to slap me for that, but you know, I'm a professor now, so I could say this, uh, France never has that extensive of holdings of the new world. They're mainly interested in fur trapping, things like that. Um, generally speaking, uh, whenever a French uh, colonist married and they very commonly married uh, native American women, uh, pretty much their children became like part of the tribe. Um, they were not really considered outsiders. By and large, French people really started uh, adapting Native American ways. That's not the same with the English. Go over one slide. Uh, the English, the British, they're a little bit later to the colonial game. For various reasons. I'm not going to talk to you about the Spanish Armada. But basically, Spain kind of had a monopoly on everything. That England kind of comes around. And by the time you get to King James... England's really ready to make a move, thanks in large part to asshole upon asshole, my ancestor, Admiral Sir John Hawkins, who designed the ships that built the Spanish Armada. He's also the one that helps bring tobacco to the new, uh, sorry, tobacco to England and also shows that slavery could be profitable. Now, the British, like I said, they're a little bit later to the colonization game. Spain has already started doing stuff with the Aztecs. They've been doing that for quite a while now, almost 100 years prior Uh, The French are doing some things in parts of the New World. Um, Spain has already gotten Florida and other parts of the Southwest. Uh, Spain's got Mexico. Spain's got the upper parts of of South America. Uh, Portugal already has Brazil. I I mentioned the Portuguese. Uh, The Portuguese are also not as concerned about race. Um, There's not too many Portuguese in Brazil in this time period. And remember, Brazil was not a place that you wanted to go as a colonist or as a slave because you're going to die. Uh, It gets better later. (laughs) So the British, they, they kind of feel left out. They feel that all the good land, quote-unquote, is taken. But they're like, you know what? Spain really hasn't gone that far north in North America. We can claim it. So they claim the Chesapeake region. Uh, the Chesapeake region, Chesapeake Bay, modern-day Virginia and Maryland. Uh, those two colonies are very, very connected in, um, in colonial history. But in particular... Virginia. Virginia is the main place they're really interested in. Virginia, named after Queen Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen. Likewise, Jamestown in 1607 uh, becomes the first permanent, permanent is a key word there, British uh, colony in North America. Uh, the British had some other ones earlier under um, Queen Elizabeth that weren't successful. Most infamously, the, the Roanoke one. Ask me in class if you want to know what happened with Roanoke. I'll, I'll tell you about that later. Uh, Jamestown, however, 1607, opens up, and almost immediately, bad things happen. Uh, There is no gold. Uh, That's not too surprising, because Virginia has no gold. They don't really know that. Um, They think there might be gold. Remember, the Spanish get tons of gold by the Aztecs and also from the Inca in South America. Uh, They also find that Jamestown's a bit swampy. It's a bit swampy. 
the the basic mainstay crops are not doing too too well. Um, they're not really growing enough to sustain themselves, let alone make a profit for their investors. Uh, remember, this was a money making opportunity. This is a money making opportunity. The people who make the colonies are really, really, really interested in making some of that do re mi. So they're not having cash. Uh, they're running out of food. Uh, the first winter, like, there's certifiable cannibalism that happens amongst the settlers. Um, not pretty whatsoever. And to make matters even more complicated, uh, the Chesapeake Bay area, uh, right around Jamestown, is pretty much the stronghold of a guy named Powhatan. Uh, Powhatan does not get a slide, sadly, but that's all right. Uh, Powhatan, uh, you probably know him better as Pocahontas' dad. Uh, Powhatan is a big-time uh, conqueror of Native American peoples. He has a huge, I mean, relatively speaking, he has a very large presence around Jamestown, and he's crazy strong, and he could have wiped them out almost immediately. Uh, he could have very easily wiped them out. Why he doesn't wipe them out, we don't really know. Uh, I don't really have a good answer one way or the other about that. He just decides not to wipe out the English. He probably doesn't really consider them a threat. Now, what does happen is tobacco. Uh, tobacco is discovered in the West Indies, so around the Caribbean. Uh, you know, it's it's been around for a while. Uh, Sir Admiral John Hawkins, you know, basically convinces the British, hey, that he sees some Native Americans doing it in um, the Caribbean. Uh, he's like, cool, this is neat. Uh, the Spanish kind of have a monopoly on it. Then John Rolfe, another guy who you might have heard of, he later marries Pocahontas, he kind of smuggles over some tobacco to Virginia, uh, even though the Spanish claim a uh, monopoly on it, and pretty much tobacco saves Virginia. Um, a very addictive substance that's not good for you, and I don't recommend you do it. I mean, hell, if you, if you want to chew or smoke tobacco, it's up to you, but you know it's not the best thing for you. Um, it saves Virginia. Yeah, had it not happened, very easily, uh, the British would have probably pulled out of North America, and we probably wouldn't be speaking English right now. Um, that's, I don't think that's exaggeration. H had tobacco not come around this time period, I guess around here we might be speaking French, I suppose, because we're in Louisiana. Uh, possibly Spanish, if the Spanish kept control over New Orleans. We don't know, but we would not be speaking English. Also, you, well, well, there definitely wouldn't be a United States. Now, the thing with tobacco, it's a very labor-intensive product. It's a super labor-intensive product. When I say super, I mean super. It's very labor-intensive. It takes a long time to cure the tobacco, to dry it, to clean it, you know, get it prepared for shipment. It needs a lot of manpower. Which is something the English don't have at the moment. Remember, uh, they, they're still like starving to death and things. So there's more work than there are people. Now, first, I want to go the easy route, which is using Native Americans. Uh, that doesn't work out very well because, remember, Powhatan's very strong. And, uh, yeah, they really can't get labor to happen with that. So what they are able to do is get what's called indentured servants. Now, you've probably heard of this before, the indentured servant. I think I mentioned it briefly during the last lecture. Uh, indentured servants work for basically you sell yourself, you sell your labor for a set number of years, generally seven to ten years. Uh, in the colonies, seven was the standard. And basically, somebody pays for your travel, 
and they 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 house you, they make they feed you, make sure you're clothed and things like that. And basically, you work for them for seven years. At the end of the seven years, you're a free person. Now, this worked because, remember, in England, there was a glut of labor. There was too many people. Uh, too many people, not enough work in England. The problem was, first of all, the New World's very far away, so, you know, you might be away from your family and stuff. And also, there was the whole dying thing. Uh, remember, the mortality rate is quite high in the colonies. Uh, the, uh, the Chesapeake Bay colony for, for European settlers, for English settlers, the mortality rate is quite high. Uh, it's, it's very high, honestly. And so to sweeten the deal, to make sure people actually want to work, they promise at the end of seven years, at the end of your labor term, you know, you pay off... Uh, pretty much your your passage over and you work for your uh, your your master, I suppose, uh, for seven years. At the end of that, you get your freedom and you get some land. Remember, there's a ton of land out there. The Native Americans aren't doing that much farming. And Powhatan by this time is like, eh, they're still small. Um, you know, they're 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 kind of adorable. Uh, the Powhatan doesn't really have like notions of like private land ownership. I mean, he's like, oh, this is my land. I can, you know, all my people can do whatever they want here. But like individual plots of land, couples of acres of land that you keep for yourself to farm, that's not really known to the Powhatan. And so that provides most of the early labor for the Chesapeake colonies, is indentured servants. Basically, these are white individuals coming over from, uh, from England, some from Ireland, who are promised freedom and, not freedom, I mean, they start out free, they are promised um, money and land, well, money in the form of land, at the end of their service. And this works out okay because oftentimes the indentured servant doesn't make it to the end of those seven years. Uh, the, their, their, uh, their master gets quite a bit of labor out of them, but then they die. And also, there's plenty of land available. I want you to be thinking about that as we keep talking. Now, while all this is going on, in 1619, something very interesting happens. In 1619, the first slaves come to Jamestown. Uh, the first slaves come to Jamestown. It's on a Dutch boat. Uh, basically, they are contraband. Pretty much, they were stolen from a different uh, slave ship. And basically, they're looking to jettison cargo. And so even though Jamestown doesn't really need the labor, they don't really need the slaves, basically, they take them on. They're like, you know what? There's more fountains to feed. That's just fine. Uh, later on in 1620, the Dutch um, especially bring 20 Angolans to Jamestown, uh, basically to serve as slaves. Now, these new arrivals are regarded as unfree but not slaves, and that is a huge difference, all right? If somebody is not free, that means they're not like a landowner. That means they don't really get a, 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 a chance to vote. It doesn't mean that they necessarily own their own labor, but they own their own personhood. They are not property, all right? Um, at this time, England doesn't really have slave laws. Uh, it doesn't have slave laws because, frankly, England doesn't need slaves in England, and the New World colonies don't need slaves especially either because there's a glut of labor and you have plenty of people willing to be indentured servants. So the English are not really, they don't really know what to do with these people. There's no legal category for them. Uh, these Africans work there for a while, some as slaves, but 
I mean, there's okay. They're working as slaves, but they're considered unfree. They're not necessarily considered property yet. Also, complicating things is that some of these Angolans are Christian, and remember, there is a huge taboo against Christians being enslaved. It's a big no-no. Um, you know, after that, you actually have like the first black person born in English America. She's a girl. Um, her parents baptize her in the Church of England, which is the modern-day Anglican Church, and she was born free. Uh, they don't have the notion of perpetual slavery just because you are black in the Americas and this time period. Now, I, I can't iterate this enough. This is not a very large number of people, okay? There are James Blacktown, 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 Blacktown. There are black folks in Jamestown. There's not a ton of them. Some of them are slaves, but as time goes on, you actually have more free black people in Jamestown. In fact, weirdly enough, there's two or three individuals who are black in Jamestown who actually own African slaves themselves. It's also not unusual for some of the free black people to get white indentured servants. Um, I should also mention this real quick. You might have heard like white slavery, uh, indentured servitude called white slavery. That's a bit of a misnomer. Um, Slaves and indentured servants were definitely considered of the same social class. Uh, they were definitely hung out together. That being said, uh, if an indentured servant lived to seven years, they would get land and become free. And uh, a slave after seven years was still a slave. Or, as it is going this time period, they are perpetually unfree labor. Uh, they are unfree labor, but they are not the property of somebody. They still have an instance of personhood. But as you said, in, in 1649, you only have about 300 black people in Virginia out of about 19,000 people total. So not a huge group by any stretch of the imagination, but not unheard of. Also, by the time you get to 1649, uh, Jamestown is a lot more successful. You have more um, you know, plantations being built, very primitive plantations. These are not like the later plantations like around here. These are very, these are pretty much just large barns. Larger farms. This is not the old, the uh, old school, newer school plantations you might be familiar with around here. Not a huge number. I have to iterate that. Not a huge number. Not all enslaved. But Jamestown is growing in financial viability, in profitability, and visibility. Now, as the demand for tobacco expanded, indentured servitude grew. Uh, more folks are willing to get into indentured servitude. Uh, as these indentured servants become free, uh, well, as they serve their term, they get their land, they in turn want indentured servants too. Uh, I, I, I have to iterate this. I, I mean, I'll iterate this now because it's a kind of an undercurrent. If you survived in the colonies, all right, literally, if you lived, you would become rich. That, that, is, that is the only way I can describe it. Like, if you lived, like if you didn't die of disease or Native American raid or starving or whatever, if you straight up lived, if you kept breathing air, you would become rich. That, that's, that's literally how it worked in the colonies in this time period. Like land was plentiful. It was very easy for you to get very like large swaths of land, hundreds of acres. Well, um, indentured servants, once they lose their servant, once they you know, got out of the servitude, I think got like 12 acres or so. Uh, but it was very easy to get more acreage of land. Uh, Native Americans are kind of being reduced in number. They're trying to get away from the English. The English are becoming more and more powerful, more and more wealthy, because the demand for tobacco keeps to grow. 
So black people and white people both enter into indentured servitude. Uh, usually seven years becomes a standard in these colonies. Uh, they can live as free people once their term is up. That's a huge caveat. While you're under your servitude, you are considered not the property of, uh, of your master, but like the employee. Like you're not allowed to go off on your own. Uh, you can't make legal decisions on your own. You can't get married on your own. Uh, you can't sell your own labor as your own. Like, you know, let's say you're working at a tobacco plantation and you decide, you know what, I'm an indentured servant. I want to sell beans as well. Uh, you can't keep the profit of that. Uh, your, your, any profit you make is considered the profit of your, um, of your master, landowner, whatever. But here's the thing. Everybody becomes landowners. Like, free black people became landowners. Now, what does end up happening, though, uh, what does end up happening, though, is the British really start assuming that Africans are aliens. And when I say alien, I don't mean like space aliens with like little antenna and little green men. It, it, foreigner. English did not consider African people like them. That's the only way I can describe it. it they othered them a little bit. You know, even though you have Africans or people of African descent, black folks, if you will, being born in Jamestown, you have indentured servants that are, you know, selling their labor, living for those seven years. They're black, and once they're out, they become landowners. You know, the, the English don't consider them one of them, if that makes sense. They, they don't feel like camaraderie or, or neighborhood, neighborly feelings towards the Africans. They, they still consider them human. They still consider them human. That, that's a huge, huge, huge thing you have to understand. They don't consider them inhuman or less than human. They just consider them different. And that's where some of this otherness gets really going. Now, later on, the British are going to make slaves the property of their masters. And how they get there is a very interesting process. How they get to the point where you go from personhood, like, yes, you are unfree, but you are still an individual, to a thing where you're not a person anymore, you are, you are a slave, is an interesting process that begins on the next slide. Now, there are a lot of different economic and demographic things that happen in the New World that really lead to the perpetual enslavement of Africans. Uh, this idea that race co really comes into play. This idea that you know the British considered the Africans different, but not because that they were black. It was because that they spoke a different language, or they just you know didn't come from the same place, or they didn't come from England. That, that's probably the big one. They knew that African people didn't come from England. You know, they didn't think a black person could be an Englishman. So how do we get to the enslavement of Africans? Number one, other colonies. Uh, the English see what's going on in the Caribbean. They see what the Spanish are doing. And they see, hey, you know what? There are enslaved Africans in those places. You know, the, 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 these, uh, these traders, these sailors that go to the Caribbean, they see the sugar plantations. They see the hundreds of black laborers all together who are, who are enslaved, and they're like, huh, okay, well, everybody else is enslaving Africans, we can too. Now, this also has an economic thing because, honestly, less poor white people are willing to go over to the New World for various reasons. Uh, number one, uh, you know, that whole dying thing. Number two, industrialization is happening more in, in, in England, and there are plenty of jobs available in England. 
Uh, also, the idea of becoming a landowner becomes less of a draw for some English people. So you have less of a supply of Native, uh, not Native, American, Native Americans, of British, of white folks who want to become uh, enslaved, not enslaved, um, indentured servants. And also African slaves become less costly. Um, a lot of things happen. Some of, that, some of that is the technology of the slave ships. Some of them get better. Uh, you know, the, the, the viability of Africans gets higher. Uh, more, you know, slaves are being captured in Africa. They're being brought on. It's, it's a supply issue. So as the supply of white laborers is going down and the supply of black enslaved people is going up and the demand is increasing and also mortality rates stop dropping, it start dropping in the United States or the later United States, more people are living. And the longer that people live, well, the less likely you are for them to die. And then you might have to pay them more. You might have to make them survive more. And so now, you know, seven years of labor, which is fairly guaranteed, as opposed to if you bought a slave, you might get seven years of labor, then they die. More than likely, you might get three or four years of labor, then they die. But now, if a, if you can, if a slave is going to live, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you're getting a lot more out of your investment than just seven years for an indentured servant. Now, remember how I said earlier that British people assumed that black people were, were African people, were alien? Then they started thinking that they're inferior. This otherness increases. At first, they just thought of the Africans as different. They're like, huh, you know, they don't literally look like us. They don't speak English the same way we do. Uh, their religion might be a bit different. You know, their customs might be a bit different. But as time went on, and as the more black people started showing up who were enslaved, all of a sudden, the idea started coming that all Africans were inferior and had the characteristics of slaves. As you might say, racism and race is rearing its ugly head. All of a sudden, there becomes stratification of slave, of, of indentured servants. Basically, white indentured servants were starting to be treated differently than black indentured servants. Black indentured servants were treated less. Uh, black indentured servants would get treated, uh, were, had harsher penalties for crimes as a white indentured servant would. And it all kind of began with they're different and then they're lesser. Likewise, by the time we get to the 1640s, black indentured servants had to serve their masters into perpetuity starting of 1640. Uh, they were not considered property, but this idea was you serve your master for life was something unheard of for white indentured servants. And now it's starting to grow. I want you to see here, slavery, racism, all this stuff didn't happen overnight in the later United States and English colonies. It was a development. And then you have the development of slavery itself. Uh, you see, if you see a picture of the slave codes of the District of Columbia, this is much later on, but basically slave codes are various laws passed basically defining the interactions between slave masters and, and slaves. It also seemed to iterate how different races interacted with each other. Now, chattel slavery comes about in the 1660s. This is another development that turns it from you're a person to you're not a person. Chattel slavery is you are cattle. You are cattle. 
You are not a human being. You are like an ox. In the 1660s, Virginia decided that the children of female black servants were slaves for life. I'll repeat that. Children were now slaves for life. This is something that did not happen in the West African slave trade. Uh, didn't really happen in ancient Greece. Like pretty much any other like slave society did not have this concept of children being enslaved from the moment of birth. Also, if you didn't notice, this is the status of the woman. This is contrary to not just England law, but pretty much all other law in Europe, which is patrilineal. Patrilineal is you get the status from the father. You know, you have your father's status. If your father is free, you are free. But they switch it to make the status of the mother the thing that overruns you. Now, some of these black servants who are having children are through rape. Well, I'll be frank about it. Uh, sometimes it's not a consensual relationship for the, uh, for the, for the woman. I mean, remember, like your master owns you, um, you know, you, you're a slave. Even if you're a servant, you, basically your master owned your, your body and your, 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 your labor and theoretically they could own your, your lady business and your womb. So this runs contrary to all sorts of European things. This actually runs contrary to Spain, where Spain has basically, if, you know, if your father is free, you can be free as well. Mentioned this before, but enslaved Africans and African Americans have the status of domestic animals. For instance, if a master killed their slave, that was not a crime. That was that that, that well, it wasn't a felony, it was a misdemeanor. It was basically destruction of your own property. Later on, it wasn't even a crime at all. It was just basically, hey, you, you messed with your own property. Um, slaves could be held accountable for transgressions, but they would not necessarily be the victims. You know. A slave would be uh, charged with murder if they killed somebody, but if somebody killed a slave, if a master killed their own... Okay, if a slave kills a master, that's murder. But if a master kills a slave, that's nothing. It's destruction of property. What's weird enough, I should mention about this, is also this also applies to the free black people who are there. Uh, free black people who do exist, uh, they start like reducing in number. Their children, even though they are not uh, enslaved, even though they've never been enslaved, are being treated as differently. You know, even though this might be a person who you know came over as an indentured servant, worked there seven years, got out, got married. Also, weirdly enough, black men in Jamestown area were more likely to be married to white women rather than black women uh, because this is really weird, but uh, white women were tax-exempt. Uh, basically, if, you're a, if you married a white woman, uh, a white woman was considered part of your household, but if you married a black woman, she was considered part of your property, and therefore she was taxable. Uh, your wife was taxable. So she made money if she sold stuff. Like, if, if your white wife sold stuff, it was, it was, you know, not taxed. If your black wife made stuff, it was taxed. So weirdly enough, a lot of black guys start marrying white women. Not a huge number, though. I, don't, I, I say this in classes, and sometimes people think it's like a ton of interracial relationships happening. Not a ton. Not a ton. But remember, there's not that too many free black people in the Chesapeake. Now, it really changes everything. What truly changes everything is the most important rebellion you've never heard of. Bacon's Rebellion. Bacon's Rebellion changes everything about colonial Virginia and what would later become the United States. Bacon rebe Bacon's Rebellion has 
has to do with the land that indentured servants were given once they finished out their term, but also lowered mortality rates. Remember, less people are dying in the colonies. With less people dying and more people surviving, they have to start getting land. They have to get started, they have to get that land once they finish their term. Now, this is, this is easy enough at first. There's plenty of quote-unquote good land out there. Um, you know, river, near a river, has plenty of water. Uh, you can farm there fairly easily once, you know, Jamestown, they couldn't really farm. But, you know, later on, they, they clear out some more land. The Powhatans kind of leave them alone. Uh, mainly because they get more powerful than Powhatans and other junk happens with Powhatan I'm not going to get into. But basically... The good land is gone, quote-unquote. The good land, you know, the land that was easy on rivers, uh, nice and plentiful, easy to grow stuff is gone. And all of a sudden, these indentured servants are not keen on it, all right? There's a lot of different indentured servants um, led by a guy by the name of Bacon. Uh, led by a dude by the name of Bacon. Nathaniel Bacon is his name. Nathaniel Bacon is basically, he's speaking for these indentured servants, Basically, he feels that Virginia's being run by the fat cats, by the, the landed elite. And he thinks that they are really screwing over the little guy. He says, basically, these landed elite, they think they're better than us. They're not better than us. They just got here earlier. You know, they have all this land. They're denying us the good land. We want to go further west. The people in Virginia, uh, led by Governor Berkeley, say, basically, you can't go further west. That's Powhatan land. We can't defend you. The Indians are going to kill you, that sort of thing. And so basically, Bacon starts getting a rebellion of various disaffected people, the poor folks against the rich folks. And the thing that happens that really scares the crippity crap out of all the, the elite of the rich folks is who he calls upon. He is treating black and white alike. He is going to black slaves. He's going to white indentured servants. He's going to these people, not looking at race and saying, basically, hey, the rich people are screwing you over. We need to do something against them. And so you have this group of young, un, you know, disaffected, angry, poor, black and white people, black and white, young men by and large, coming together. And this scares the crippity, pissity pants out of all sorts of people in the Virginia elite. Uh, you know, Berkeley is shivering in his boots. Sadly, what ends up happening is one of the worst anticlimaxes in uh, human history. Basically, before they get to um, Williamsburg, which is where the, the colonial capital is, uh, Bacon dies of dysentery. Uh, he dies of dysentery. He dies of a disease right before he can have his big showdown with Berkeley. Kind of an anticlimax. Uh, his rebellion falls apart shortly thereafter. But this is enough to scare the crippity crap out of all sorts of planters. The rich elite of Virginia know, holy crap, there's way more of the poor folks than there are us rich folks. They say, you know, promising people uh, a bunch of land in seven years whenever they died after five was great when people died after five years. But now that they're living and we're running out of this quote-unquote good land, uh, there's a problem. And so they need a perpetual workforce, a workforce that doesn't believe they're ever going to become free, a workforce that doesn't believe that they're going to get that seven acres of land, and a workforce that doesn't believe that they're, you know, ever going to really make anything of it. 
And not only that, they need to make sure that the poor, disaffected white folks, the, the former indentured servants and stuff, also look down upon these people so they don't see kinship. My friends, this is how racism really comes to the United States. It comes as a solution. Remember, racism is a tool. It's a horrible tool. It's a tool I hate, but it's a tool that is used for a purpose. And what is the purpose of racism here? To prevent the poor folks from coming together, because there was a hell of a lot more poor folks than there were rich folks. Remember, the planter elite didn't, didn't you know, they, they see poor. They didn't see black or white. And this is basically, if we can get the poor white people to think they're better than the poor black people, we could keep our whole society together. Basically, white freedom and prosperity, or the, the idea of prosperity, rested on denying black folks their freedom. Planters now switch to an entirely black labor force, an enslaved labor force, not only because it's cheaper, but also for the idea of safety. They are petrified of something bad happening. That's how this all comes together. This is how later on the colonies get wealthy. This is how later on we're able to talk about freedom and all these good things in the United States. It's because they really want to make sure that there is somebody low of the low. Now, let's talk about the different types of slavery very quick. Uh, tobacco slavery. Uh, tobacco slavery. Um, also, rice is a, less, is a lesser extent, too. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, they really depend on black slaves. Uh, the labor for tobacco workers really depends on where you are. Um, a lot of masters actually work together with the slaves. Early on in Virginia, you might if, you're, if you do own slaves, you probably own one or two slaves. And you generally work alongside them. Uh, you live with them. Uh, they, they sleep in the same house with you. Sometimes they, they live in the same they live in the same bed. They sleep in the same bed as you, uh, in a, in a non sexual fashion. I should mention um, sleeping in the same bed as other people was kind of a necessity back then. It was a very not, not really controversial or whatever thing. <laughs> Nothing sexual about that. Uh, as as uh, these these different landowners become larger and bigger, some masters start dividing their slaves among many holdings. Uh, this is basically where you start having more slaves being had together. It's the first time you really start having overseers and things like that. And uh, they didn't really do too much inside of their own houses. They didn't really, really have too many house slaves. Uh, these plantations, if you want to call them that, were not very opulent. Uh, like I said, this is nothing like the later plantations you might be more familiar with if you go down the Mississippi River or, or the like. <clears throat> these Virginia tobacco plantations, they're, they're pretty much just farms, pretty much just barns. And pretty much all slaves were used specifically for labor, um, field work, field type of labor. Uh, you don't have the specialization. I mean, later on, you're going to have slaves being things like blacksmiths or cooks or things like that. Uh, you know, now, as, as, as time went on, the, the masters, of course, they, they want more return on profit, more ROI, uh, return on investment. And so they really start, um, you know, trying to get more skilled labor with the hope that it will make the unskilled labor go even faster. And also, it's a cheaper thing, too. Uh, why go to your own blacksmith? So wh why go to another blacksmith if you have your own? Uh, you know, why go to a cooper? Why go to a, you know, wheelwright if you have your own? Likewise, you start having more black women being involved in this, uh, working in both the fields and also in the homes, uh, doing things like um, 
my gosh, Cooks is a pretty big one. Uh, wet nurse is actually a pretty high one as well. Uh, wet nurse is whenever you uh, basically give your baby to be nursed by somebody else. The person who does the nursing is called a wet nurse. Uh, they might find a slave who had recently had a child and uh, give them the, uh, the master's child to, um, to feed, as it were. So you're still having uh, some specialization of labor. Uh, this is, like I said, this is quite early. This is before the revolution. Uh, if you want to know where exactly I'm talking about, uh, if you look at that map coming up, if you, if you look at that map, uh, when I'm talking about the Chesapeake Bay area, it's that area in kind of like yellow color. We're talking like your Maryland's, uh, Virginia. Uh, th that's where we're mainly talking about this type of tobacco slavery. Now, things are a little bit different in the low country. In the low country, that's south of there. Uh, that's your, you know, Carolinas, specifically South Carolina, around the uh, coastline, around the coastline, around the islands. They have their own variations of slavery. It's a variation of slavery you may not be familiar with. Now, the Carolina Low Country, specifically around Charleston, the islands around Charleston, they don't, it's not an environment very conducive for tobacco. Tobacco doesn't grow very well there. It's very wet, very marshy. Uh, what does grow very well there is rice. This is where you start having rice plantations. Uh, rice plantations are a bit different because of the nature of the environment and also the nature of slavery. Uh, here you have much higher numbers of African slaves. Uh, this is the one place in the um, colonies that later became the United States where you have slave numbers approaching somewhere close to uh, the, the Caribbean in terms of way more Africans and you know African slaves than you do white settlers. Uh, this actually applies to this day. Uh, the state of South Carolina still has per capita one of the highest populations of African Americans in the United States. Uh, they're not a majority. Uh, the only state that has a higher percentage of African Americans in it is Mississippi. I want to say like Mississippi is like 30 or 40 percent African American by population. Um, for most, however, for most of uh, U.S. history, like up until the Civil War and even a little bit afterwards, uh, there are much more African Americans in South Carolina than any other state. In fact, they're one of the few states that actually has an African American majority. Now, because of these sheer numbers, there's a lot of fear of slave insurrections, slave uprisings. That's one thing that doesn't really change throughout slavery is the fear of uprisings, the fear that maybe one day slaves are going to come together, they're going to they're going to rally against their masters and kill them. Uh, basically, it, it proves that the masters knew that this wasn't a great thing and people may not like it. Now, because the way that rice has grown, um, I happen, happen to know quite a bit about this because my first job was working in a rice field in Crawley, Louisiana. Uh, not a pleasant experience, I will tell you that, because rice has grown in water. Uh, rice is grown in, in fairly deep water. Um, it's very marshy. Not a place you want to be. There's a lot of mosquitoes. And also the land where rice is grown is very marshy. It's not very conducive for building things. It's very hard to like build long-term buildings on it. Also, disease is pretty prevalent. Uh, malaria, things like that, because of the mosquitoes that inevitably come about. So what ends up happening is what's called the task system which is a very unique version of slavery that it comes up around South Carolina that really has its own dynamic. 
basically, the way the task system works is that the, the, the master, the, the, the slave holder, uh, he would not live with the slaves. Um, he would maybe visit once a week during season, maybe a little bit often if it's harvest or something. But basically, uh, the master would come periodically, not every day. Uh, the master is not somebody you see every day. And basically, he would tell the slaves like a list of things he wanted them to do over the course of that, that week or that month or whatever. Basically, tell them, like, hey, you know, um, here's what I want done. Uh, just make sure it's done. And then the master leaves. And pretty much the slaves are left on their own. Uh, they might have an over overseer. They might not. Uh, but the slaves are given a lot of autonomy. The slaves are not, like, told to work in a certain manner or, like, you have to work a certain way. Basically, as long as the job is done... Uh, the slaves can do whatever they want afterwards. Their time is their own. And so because you have this distance, because of, because of the environment, because of you know, weather and climate and just how you don't want to be around a rice, plant, uh, rice field, uh, most of the masters would live in a place like Charleston. And then you know, they would go out to their uh, plantation, as it were. They weren't too opulent, but eh, a little bit more opulent than what you might have in Virginia in this time period. And they would just you know, see their slaves every once in a while. See their slaves every once in a while. This allowed for a great deal of autonomy, like a great deal of autonomy for the slaves. Uh, the enslaved people were able to really have, I don't want to use the word freedom because they were certainly not free, but they could kind of decide their own thing. Uh, they're very much left alone. They're very much left like by themselves, do their own thing. And because of this, because of this distance from, uh, you know, the white people, um, a lot of these slaves actually maintain a lot of their own culture and a lot of a uh, lot of a West African heritage. Uh, one people in particular who I'm fascinated by and I don't really write too much about. Maybe I should do some more research with them. Is the Gullah people of the uh, of the Sea Islands of South Carolina? Uh, the Gullah are brought over from West Africa. They are brought over from West Africa specifically to grow rice. Uh, basically, the slave masters know, hey, these people in West Africa they grow rice. Uh, it should be a fairly similar climate here in South Carolina. So you know what? We're going to get them. We're going to bring them over because they know how to grow rice. And then we're going to kind of leave them alone. As long as we get our rice grown, we don't care what happens. We don't want to be here with, with them, you know, in these horrible rice fields. And so basically the Gullah are left by themselves. They keep their own language. Uh, they kind of speak a, a pidgin dialect, which is kind of a, a mixture of West African languages and English. Um... And they're pretty much left alone. They're pretty much left alone, and they're really able to keep a lot of elements of West African culture around. And they still exist. There are still Gullah people in South Carolina, people of Gullah heritage, who speak Gullah, which is a, it's a variation of, of English mixed in with some West African stuff. Um, have their own culture. Uh, whenever I went to Charleston for my honeymoon, I remember I wanted to make sure that I bought things uh, made by Gullah artisans. Uh, particularly, they make thing they make these baskets out of like these ocean reeds, like this. Uh, I think they call it seagrass. I believe it's called seagrass. Where basically they, they make these reeds and they weave these baskets. Uh, I bought some flowers that were woven out of these reeds. It was really cool looking. So anyway, I'm fascinated by the task system. You also start having in in um, just because of the sheer number of African Americans, well, slaves in this time period. Uh, there are more distinct classes amongst people of color simply because there are so many of them. Uh, you do have, you don't have like indentured servitude like you might have in Virginia, but you do have more like Africans of status. Uh, Creoles, for instance, uh, Creoles, uh, and this time now, uh, last week, Creoles meant people who were born in the New World. 
Uh, now the term Creole uh, kind of means somebody of mixed race heritage. Uh, think around New Orleans. Think around New Orleans. There's Creole people in New Orleans who are, oh my gosh, they got African descendants, uh, African ancestors, and some French, a lot of French. So basically, it's it's masters having children with their slaves. But unlike Virginia, there was actually some element of status for these children. Uh, the child of a slave and a master could actually sometimes get the status of the master. They could get the status of their father. And sometimes they actually inherited. Sometimes they actually inherited. And so in Charleston, also in New Orleans, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, but in Charleston, even though it's an English colony, you do have, just probably because of the sheer number of African Americans who are there, you have Creoles and children of masters who live and work alongside whites and really, weirdly enough, are kind of viewed somewhat on the same level of them by wealth purposes. Uh, later on, where there's like these slave rebellions or fierce slave rebellions in Charleston, in and around Charleston, actually some of the Creoles are like siding with the white persons, like, oh my gosh, we need to make sure these slaves aren't going out and killing us, that type of thing. Mm, uh, now, as plantations get around, uh, more technology comes about. Um, my gosh, what, what do we need to know about that? Not too much. Um, they, they, they prepare tobacco. Also, uh, they turn indigo into dye. That's another plant that comes about that becomes pretty profitable for the U.S. Uh, you start having more slaves as carpenters and blacksmiths. I mentioned that because it was seen as a money-saving measure for the various masters. Uh, slaves would often tan leather. That's another thing. Tanning leather is a very not glamorous job by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, some slave artisans made boots and garments. Once again, it's cheaper for the master. Like, if you own somebody who can make, you know, uh, this stuff, you can you can have clothes for, for forever. So just know there's more diversification of labor for the slaves. Uh, kind of the material culture. The material culture for slaves, it's very minimal in this time period. Very, very minimal around this time period. Um, you know, what they actually had, their furniture and cooking utensils varied from place to place. Uh, however, once you get into the low country, once you get into places like the Gullah, because they're left alone, they're able to build their own uh, housing structures on the rice fields, and they look very similar to what you have in West Africa. Uh, in the early years, uh, what cloth they did have came from England. However, as time went on, uh, there was more homespun fabric made by the slaves at home. And in general, they kept West African clothing styles. Uh, a lot of times the European masters were okay with it because it had some level of uh, separation from the other people, from basically distinguishing between the classes, if that makes sense. What do they eat? Uh, the basic staples pretty much for all, sla uh, for all slaves in early America are things like corn, yams, and, sal and salt pork. Uh, Basically, corn is a, uh, a Native American crop, which you still eat a ton of every day, even if you're unfamiliar with it. Corn is in everything. Uh, yams came over from West Africa. That was a pretty, uh, pretty solid staple. Potatoes are very uh, nutrient-rich uh, nutrient food. Uh, salt pork is basically the meat that they might have had. It was, a, it was like preserved pig parts, um, similar to bacon in a sense. Uh, rice, as I said, very important in the South Carolina uh, low country. Uh, wheat comes a little bit later. Uh, that was never really a, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's never really a, a, a profit crop. It was just more of a sustenance crop. Eat this, you know, to just stay alive. People are making money off wheat in this time period. 
And finally, slaves also do grow some vegetables to supplement their diet. And so what you do start having is a very... Yeah, it's a humble material culture, I would say, for the slaves, but they do have some autonomy. Uh, moving on, moving on. Um, ooh, misogy... Not misogynation. Miscreation and creolization. Okay. The English, unlike the French and Spanish, were very obsessed with sexual contact, making sure that certain people didn't get together with other certain people. Now, here's the thing. There was tons of contact, both consensual and unconsensual, but oftentimes it was consensual. And I think the consensual stuff is what kind of made the uh, elites more afraid than anything else. Uh, black people, white people, Native Americans, they all got together. They had all sorts of kids. And the various elites feared a creation of this kind of like mixed race class, which didn't really have a defined identity. Remember, after something like Bacon's Rebellion, they're very afraid of like people coming together and they want to keep the races separate so basically they can keep social order. Uh, Creolization also has African parents make African-American children. That's a big distinction. Remember, uh, African people are like still keeping kind of their African ways, but African-Americans are like taking American culture. They're taking American identity, that sort of thing. They're, they're not African. They're, this, they're a new creation. They're, they're in America. They, they, <clears throat> you know, they, they have no affinity towards Africa. They may not speak the African languages very well. Their surroundings are American. And so they are very much not the same as their parents. Now, creolization together caused a lot of physical and cultural changes. Um, early on, remember how I said early on, um, if you're an African person in the New World, uh, a free person in the New World, you're probably more likely to have a white wife than a black wife. Well, uh, they, colonial legislatures start bearing, uh, banning interracial marriages, uh, mainly because, remember, all of a sudden in the New World, they're having the status of the child be based upon the status of the mother. Well, if the mother is white and free, uh, ergo, that mixed-race child must be free as well. And they're not keen on that. Remember, they're trying to... Racism and discrimination makes easy categories for easy assumptions. And these individuals kind of defy these easy characterizations. Now, what is this African-American culture? Well, it, it, really, it really gets complex. A lot of it is West African. A lot of it is West African. A lot of examples of, West, of African legacies, specifically West African. Uh, what are some of these things? Uh, well, for instance, the emphasis upon the extended family. Uh, the extended family is very big in West African culture. Remember, most of these villages, quote-unquote, were just extended family units. Uh, kind of as an extension to slavery, as a reaction to slavery, uh, these African-American culture really became uh, really, really focused upon larger family. You know, you may not be around your mother or your father or your children because of the nature of slavery. And so, you know, things like aunts and uncles and fictive kin. Oh, fictive kin in particular. People who may or may not be blood related to you but are treated as family becomes very, very, very important. Also, uh, kind of this emphasis upon uh, on, uh, helping shelter escapees. Uh, the family helps people adapt. You know, once you come over... Uh, part of that seasoning process. Maybe, you know, you, you get with a new family unit. You know, all of a sudden these people who you just met become your aunts and uncles. Or you shelter escapees. 
Also, um, African slaves start getting a little bit more autonomy to name their uh, children what they want. And they start using a lot of uh, African-American naming practices. Basically, different names for these new individuals that weren't really West African, weren't really, you know, English. It's our own type of land name. Uh, African religions do persist in the United in, in America. Uh, various things come together. Various things that come together. Um, you know, various different belief systems. Generally, the masters kept them alone. Remember also... Uh, early on, there's a big taboo of uh, enslaving another Christian, so the masters wanted to make sure that they remained not Christian. Uh, various indigenous practices, West African practices, do kind of come together when it, even once they convert to Christianity or once Christianity comes about. Uh, things like the ring shouts, uh, decorating people's graves, uh, calling out during a church service, that sort of thing really is West African. Uh, probably the best example of a mixture of West African religion and Christianity is uh, from around here. That'd be voodoo or hoodoo, as it will, as it are. That is a combination of West African beliefs with Catholicism. Um, voodoo, as it or hoodoo, whichever you want to call it, it's uh, it's something that comes about in the New World where they mix Catholicism with West African beliefs, and all of a sudden, some of these West African um, ancestor or animal gods, not gods, lowercase g gods, animal spirits, uh, become kind of like combined with Catholic saints in a way, and that's kind of what voodoo is. It's a lot of West African stuff, a lot of variations of, um, of Catholicism in there as well. Uh, uh, some other things I do want you to know about that comes from West Africa, uh, the incest taboos. I mean, pretty much... Um, you know, there's been an incest taboo for quite a while, but like, you know, marrying your, your sister or whatever. However, in Europe, uh, there's less taboos about cousins. Um, like the entire European royal family, still to this day, is, is very intermarried in terms of cousins and stuff. Uh, West Africans did not do that. Uh, West Africans did not do that. And there's a huge taboo in African-American culture in this time period against any sort of incest taboos, which actually even spread to fictive kin. Like the people that... They might have called their aunts and uncles and stuff. They still considered like family, and you would not marry if you didn't. If you know, if you just wouldn't marry them because you consider them a family member. Uh, the idea of spirit possession. This is your modern day zombie. I always like to throw in this because everybody gets interested in zombies. Uh, zombies, as we know them, uh, come from this kind of merger of West African beliefs, where they believe that spirits could indeed uh, possess a human soul. Um, originally, a zombie is somebody who is possessed by a spirit, uh, but is not necessarily dead. In fact, they're not dead. It's only in time where the term zombie means a, a dead person who's been reanimated of some, by some sort. But if we're talking about the traditional West African zombie, that's uh, kind of like a demonic possession. It's not demonic possession. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad possession, but just a, a spirit possessing you. Another thing is divination. That's a very big thing in West African. Uh, you also see this around New Orleans as well with voodoo. Um, basically the idea that you could, you could read the future by various signs, uh, chicken entrails or bones. Uh, chicken's a big one. Just killing a chicken, seeing where its blood and intestines go. Um, you can, you can figure out the future, other various signs that were used. If you ever one more picture, uh, one more slide, you're going to see a picture of some of these gull slaves around South, uh, Carolina. Uh, they're engaging in some of their more traditional beliefs. This is a religious celebration. Um... For instance, they got the banjo. Uh, the banjo is a variation of a West African instrument. 
Um, it's the first truly American, as we know it, like, you know, North America, for, uh, later United States instrument that ever was. Uh, the banjo is a variation of some of the, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Not lute. Yeah, I guess lute would be it. Uh, kind of like a, a guitar-like thing that some West African griots might have had. Now, what kind of turns some of this away from traditional beliefs is the Great Awakening. Now, I'll be talking about the Great Awakening quite a bit because it is of pretty strong importance to what ultimately happens with African-American culture. Uh, there have been several Great Awakenings in U.S. history. Uh, this is the first one. Basically, it, it has a lot of influence, not just on African-Americans. Actually, it has more influence upon uh, what's going on in the North and... Um, uh, pilgrims and things like that, but there's still there's still emphasis on African Americans. Uh, basically, it's saying that religion is not just something for the you know the elites. Uh, Christianity is not just something for the uh, the frozen chosen, the gods predestined. It could be for everybody. And all of a sudden, you start having ministers starting to preach equality in the spirit. Uh, you know, going with Paul talking about how there's no no Hebrew, no Greek, no free, no slave, no man or woman. We're all brothers and sisters in the Christ type of thing. They start really preaching that. And they start preaching more to African Americans. They start preaching to the slaves. Remember, remember, for the longest time there was that taboo about enslaving another Christian. But now ministers are preaching to the slaves and trying to get them to convert, and a lot of them do convert. A lot of them do convert to Christianity. Now, these slaves who hear this, the enslaved people who do hear it, they start leaking spiritual equality, which is something that they talk about, you know, quite a bit um, in the Bible, with earthly equality. Basically, no, 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 we're all equal. If we're all equal under God, we should be, um, you know, equal under each other. Uh, there's a general sense of African-American conversion. A lot of uh, old Africans convert, and some of them do start incorporating their own religion, but some of them kind of go on with regular church services. And these church services start having more African-American influence on there, more African influence. Now, that's going to be a hallmark of this class. If you don't know this, the church in the African-American community, specifically the Christian church, but basically religious belief in general, and the African community is huge. You cannot overemphasize, you cannot over-exaggerate how important the church is to African-American society and culture throughout history. Now, what does start happening, though, is that a development of, this, of distinctly African-American churches. Um, at first, basically, um, black people and white people attended the same church. Basically, all you had was the Anglican church, and they were segregated. Basically, black persons and white persons had to sit separate from each other. They're still trying to keep up that old Baconers Rebellion thing of making sure people stay separate. Um, also, the kind of taboo starts kind of going away. They just start adapting it. They start trying to justify how they could, um, you know, keep slaves, but also have the slave Christian. Basically, how can we use Christianity to make the slaves more compliant? So what they do is basically the masters start using church to really preach certain things to the, uh, to the African Americans, uh, to the enslaved people. Uh, saying things like, I think Paul says at one point, uh, you know, slaves obey your masters. Uh, that, that, that is something, you know, because God put them in authority over you. Also, uh, you ever heard of the book of Philemon? Uh, the book of Philemon, which is uh, the shortest book of the Bible, where basically Paul tells, uh, is basically telling a, uh, a slave master to accept his, slave, his runaway slave back because he's a Christian now. Uh, basically, they really preach that because it looks like Paul is really pushing, um, really, really pushing 
that slavery is okay by God. Uh, some African Americans don't like this. Uh, by and large, at first, they want to keep them in their own churches. Later on, we're going to talk about the development of separate African American churches. Um, not all slaves went to church because it, it might have been more remote or they might not have had the chance to do it. So basically, this African American Christianity, as I said before, blends West African stuff and European elements. Uh, you also have like various picking and choosing from the Bible. Uh, later on, like when I talk about more about African American and specifically uh, Deep South slave religion, uh, they're really keen on things like Moses, like getting the slaves out of Egypt, uh, freedom from slavery. They they're keen on that part. They're not so keen on the uh, Paul telling you to remain a slave. Uh, another thing that starts coming about is a lot more culture. Um, basically, development of like language and music and folk culture comes about. Uh, the English, the vernacular that was spoken by the slaves is a mixture of traditional West African languages and English. You have people like the Gri uh, the Griot, the Gullah, who speak their own thing pretty much entirely. Uh, music also comes about. That's something that they find pretty early. Uh, masters don't really mess around with because they see that slaves are compliant if they, they get to play their own music. Uh, a lot of African-American music becomes American popular music just in general. Uh, for instance, the, you know, banjo in general. Uh, complex rhythm, strong beat characteristic is something you find in a lot of early slave music. Uh, later on, the masters start banning horns and drums among slaves because they think they're being used to get people together and they're afraid of slave insurrections. Uh, West African folk literature survives uh, mainly as an oral tradition, things like Br'er Rabbit, things like that. Now, the Southern dialect in general kind of becomes very influenced by African-Americans, uh, mainly because things like black women are really the ones raising white children. We said earlier that... Uh, you know, black women often served as wet nurses. Uh, wet nurses that pretty much became a, a matronly figure for pretty much the entirety of the life of the young children. Uh, the young white children are pretty much raised by black women until they get older, and then they're told to like beat up black people. So uh, there, there's an emphasis on on language that has happened there. Uh, another one is just basically uh, food. Food is a big one. Uh, food's probably the biggest one. Uh, that's one thing we all can agree on is food. I mean, you've seen my stomach. Clearly, I enjoy food. Uh, a lot of things that become traditional Southern culture are actually African-American. Uh, barbecued pork. Barbecue in general is, I mean, just cooking meat over open flame, that's as old as cavemen. Um, barbecue, as we know it, kind of comes from Native Americans, like how they would cook things to preserve meat. Uh, pork, though, that's a very slave thing because that was viewed as easy meat to get, and basically it's a way to preserve the cheap meat. Uh, frying chicken, that's another thing that comes from African-American slave culture. Okra and collard. Uh, okra is a very West African plant. In fact, the word gumbo uh, literally means okra. Sorry, okra means gum. Yeah, no, no. The word gumbo means okra in Gullah. So you can't really make a good gumbo without okra. Uh, things like collards, things like that. Uh, we're focusing mainly on the South because there's really not that much slavery in the North. I don't want to say there's no slavery. There's just not a lot. Um, small number of slaves in general, they generally work much more closely to their masters. And uh, they really have fewer opportunities to preserve their own culture because there just aren't a lot of them and they really don't get together that much. Um, there's, like I said, it's not like there's no slaves in the North. I mean, even by the edge of the Civil War, pretty much a lot of states still had slavery. Even some of the states that stayed in the Union had slavery. Um, once you get to the Northern colonies, places like Pennsylvania, well, Pennsylvania never had slaves, but like New York, Boston, places like that. Um, 
you don't have as many slaves and definitely not as strong of a slave culture, influence on culture in general. Uh, they do have slave codes, like basically to make sure that slaves don't go all these different places, uh, you know, stay in various places. Not very strongly enforced, mainly because there's not that many of them. There's really no fear of slave insurrections in the North, simply because there aren't that many slaves. Uh, in the middle colonies, there are curfews, specifically in New York. Uh, are there slaves in Pennsylvania? Later on, there's never a ton. The book messed that up. Uh, New Jersey has quite a bit of slaves, though. And New York has probably the most slaves of any, quote-unquote, northern place. And there are very strong curfews to make sure they just don't go all over the place. But as you can see by that, by that, uh, by that various chart, uh, not a ton of slaves. Not a ton of slaves. And also... There's way more slaves in the West Indies than there are in um, in in the United in the later United States. I mean, if you just look at the percentage of the population who are African American, I mean, it's about ninety percent in the British West Indies. Uh, by the time we get to the edge of the Revolution, it's about forty five percent in the Southern colonies, much lower in the Northern colonies. Uh, in New England itself, around Boston, uh, the Puritan stuff means very few slaves. Uh, very few slaves. Uh, what slaves that did come in, the Puritans generally converted to Christianity, and they pretty much could inherit own property, and their children were not enslaved. However, it was not economically viable. There's really not a lot of them. Really not a lot of them. And we're, this is like, like New Hampshire, like Rhode Island. Actually, Rhode Island didn't have slaves because Rhode Island tried to become a slave haven. Uh, now, what is life like for the people not in British colonies? I mean, this is, I know this is kind of a long lecture, but we might break it up. Uh, well, in Louisiana and Florida, there's not too much field work. Not too much field work. Um, they use slaves primarily as soldiers, which is ironically why West Africa wanted their slaves away. It was because they were strong and young, and they didn't want them to be soldiers. Uh, the Spanish were very keen on having soldiers be slaves. Uh, however, once the British take Florida, which is always a kind of a bone in the various throats, uh, Florida gets kind of tossed about who controls it for quite a while. Uh, more slavery and plantations grow. However, that's North Florida. Like where modern day Miami and stuff is, is still swamps. Uh, in the French colony of Louisiana, which you might have heard of because that's where we are, uh, the slaves of the had are primary military. Uh, the French have about 6,000 slaves uh, come from places like Haiti. Uh, slaves outnumber whites uh, tremendously. That's one thing you're going to find out about Louisiana. It's akin to South Carolina in that way. I think South Carolina had a higher percentage of slave population, but uh, Louisiana was also majority slave territory and slave state later on um, with a very high African-American population. Uh, what is unique about Louisiana, though, and about French colonies in general, is that these African people, black people, had a lot more status. Um, there were tons of free people of color in New Orleans. That's one thing. New Orleans is always the exception. In my Southern history class, I always say New Orleans is the exception. New Orleans is the exception here. Uh, there are a ton of really rich black people in New Orleans. Uh, this is not... It's still a French territory. This is not what's part of the United States yet. Uh, there are tons of rich people of color. Um, sexual exploitation of black women. Yes, there are some like, you know, rape and non-consensual stuff. But there's also quite a bit of consensual stuff. You have a very large mixed race population. You might know them as Creoles. New Orleans Creoles come about 
New Orleans Creoles are very wealthy. They can become very wealthy. Oftentimes they were slaveholders themselves, but they were very free. Uh, That is one thing you're going to find out throughout African-American history. New Orleans is always the exception. You have a considerable amount of free people of color with money in New Orleans. Uh, Black women, black women uh, really depends on where you are in the colony. Um, In general, in general, black men were more highly valued than black women as slaves, uh, mainly because it's for labor purposes. Um, Still, they were put for for labor work. Uh, Most black women who lived in the South worked in labor, worked in the fields. Um, Even if you were pregnant, you were expected to, like, give birth while in the field, like, you, you lay down, had the baby, and then you, you went back to work. Uh, would that have complications from having work? Yes, yes. Once you get to the 18th century, though, uh, you have more field workers, but you also have a lot more house servants, uh, basically people working in houses as maids and cooks and things like that. Uh, there is sexual exploitation by the masters simply because, in this time period, because of chattel slavery, the master is said to have owned your body. Now, there's always the fear of resistance and rebellion. And I'm going to close with this. We're going to talk much more about slave resistance and slave rebellion later on. But it's kind of a long one. But you do need to know all this before we get into the revolution. Uh, To keep people enslaved, especially in these places where there are very large numbers of African-American slaves, uh, places like South Carolina, Louisiana to a lesser extent, but definitely South Carolina, uh, to make sure that this larger population, who is oftentimes stronger than you are, because you know they're doing a lot of field work, they can be physically strong, uh, it relies on physical and psychological like force, basically bearing one's will on you to make sure that you stay compliant. Uh, there are forms of beatings all the time. Um, overseers, who could be black or white, would often beat slaves to basically make sure that the slaves kept working. And it actually had a psychological impact, not just on the slave being beaten, but the other people too. Basically like, hey, look how they beat that person. I better stay, you know, better stay compliant and stay working. Uh, Very rarely would they kill one unless it's like they're afraid that this person's existence would cause a slave rebellion. Remember, uh, they're thinking of these people as economic. Like they're trying to make money off of these individuals. If you kill somebody, you don't get their labor anymore. I I know it's a harsh way of thinking about people, but that's how it worked. So how might a slave respond to it? Well, resistance. That's that's the big one. Uh, Resistance. Uh, Some escaped. Some escaped. Um, A lot of them, not a lot of them, but some people did escape. I mean, they just ran away. Uh, Become maroons. Become maroons. Uh, A maroon is basically a slave who has gone away and is living outside of pretty much all society. They generally stay in places like swamps or, uh, you know, just kind of more areas that people didn't want to go to. Uh, Probably the longest lasting maroon community is in Spanish Florida around the Seminole Nation. Uh, The Seminoles are actually pretty cool about letting former slaves stay there because they're like, ha ha ha, F the Spanish, F the English, F the French, we don't care, screw the Europeans. You know, slaves, y'all are all right with us, why don't we stay? Uh, You have various uh, slave rebellions that get a lot bigger. For instance, in Charleston, uh, there's one where basically some of these, uh, these aren't Gullah people, but these are other like sea island uh, slaves, rice slaves. Uh, They go to Charleston, they steal ammunition, they start plundering plantations. It gets put down. Uh, The fear of slave rebellions is a lot more evident than the actual rebellions themselves. Fear is way more important, is, is way more vital, is actually stronger than force itself. However, there was actually much more casual 
um, you know, rebellion. I mean, yes, sometimes they might poison a master and it's kind of rare. Destroying a property is pretty, pretty common. Uh, gold breaking, basically you just go really slow. Um, you know, oh my gosh, master, the plow broke. I, I can't do it today. Oh no, there's, you know, the such and such broke. Uh, basically purposely breaking things so they could get out of work. That was actually fairly common. Uh, rebellion isn't just necessarily, you know, running away or killing somebody. It could just be like being slow and making their life miserable. Now, one thing that never goes away is a fear of a slave revolt. Um, we're going to be talking about various slave revolts, how they happened. The fear of that never goes away. And a lot of what slave masters are doing is because of the fears of these various revolts. If you go over one slide, you're going to see, um, for instance, an announcement by one Thomas Jefferson, who you might have heard of, um, for a runaway slave. For a, for a runaway slave, basically. It's, you know, hey, uh, I'm Thomas Jefferson. I'm, you know, I'm not... I'm not president or anything yet. We haven't had the revolution yet, but uh, you know, my my slave has run away, and I'm looking for him. So, in conclusion, uh, the history of black people in the colonies is both painful and exhilarating. Like, there's some good stuff, and there's also some bad stuff. Uh, enslavement does happen. Racism really starts to develop, and also a loss of African heritage, which is not really completely gone. Just depends on your proximity. Like, if you live in a town or a city, you have a much different uh, experience than, like, if you if you work in a farm. Also, if you're in the Carolinas, it's very different than how it is in Louisiana or in Virginia or something like that. Uh, however, resistance and also this idea of a, of a new family really develop African-American culture. And that's going to get more complex once we get into the revolution, which is next class. But what I want you to think about is Bacon's Rebellion. I want you to think about how racism is used as a tool in this instance. So with that, for, for quite a long one, this is Dr. Tully for History 311, ended.